So I came to a realization over my recent vacation. I am no longer young or hip or edgy. <laughs> I was not that hip and edgy to begin with. Whatever edge I had has been dulled. Comes perhaps at the cost of greater inner peace, so it's not the worst thing in the world. But things I used to love, my guilty, edgy pleasures. Now just the guilty pleasures I have are things like watching The Bachelorette with my wife. <laughs> and there's nothing edgy at all about that. I mean, one of my biggest guilty, edgy pleasures used to be back in the 80s when I was growing up, I loved zombie movies. Used to love the, the fright, the feeling of dread being around the corner. I tell people I love zombie movies. They were my guilty, edgy pleasures, and they'd say, eh, gross. Now, you like zombies? Oh, which one? Television show, movie? <laughs> zombies are big business now. Zombies and vampires. But there's a difference we see. We got, what's his name, Eric over here from True Blood on HBO. <laughs> That's the point. The only reason I know that Eric is Eric is because of the oohs and ahs about what Eric did on, that I see on Facebook on Sunday night from Eric's many fans. Vampires have often been popular. They're quite popular now. There's something about vampires that they're, you know, like sexy and mysterious, like they represent a, a nightclub that we're not quite sure we're cool or hip enough to go into, you know? Vampires are damned. They're damned, but desirable. They represent a kind of fascination with living forever. They are super alive, even if they are imperiled. Zombies, however... Yeah. No one wants to be a zombie. They are damned and disgusting. They represent a fear of the herd, the fear of being overrun by the mass and eaten alive. The mindlessly brain dead who are not forever alive, but forever dead. And so I think that's part of the particular dread of zombies. But zombies are not edgy anymore. They have gone mainstream. You can run this upcoming fall, probably around the time of Halloween, a 5K or a 10K in which you can pretend to be chased by people in zombie makeup. There are semi-serious academic papers that have been written about surviving the zombie apocalypse or whether, in fact, scientifically, the zombie apocalypse is likely at all. Seriously, people expend a lot of brain power on people who don't really have any brains. <laughs> There's even one, an article I read called Zombies and Zen, which argued completely unpersuasively that zombies had a number of the factors of Zen Buddhist monks. You know, they weren't particularly, care, uh, they weren't particularly uh, upset or care so much about how they dress. They don't worry if it rains or if it's sunny as has been pointed out by people who have much more knowledge of Zen Buddhism than me, they miss the whole aspect in this 
argument of the fact that zombies are driven by constant gnawing, hunger, and craving, and have no capacity for awareness and no capacity for compassion. Zombies are mainstream now. And why zombie movies? Why did I like them growing up? Why are they so popular right now? I think it's because zombie movies, and all horror movies, but particularly zombie movies, have to do with some core human drives. Fear and safety and trust. I mean, this is a primal question that we as adults have been having ever since we have been recognizable to ourselves as human beings. What's out there in the dark? Does it threaten us? Is it coming to get us? And with zombies, there's even something else that amps up that fear just a little bit more. Is one of our family and friends, have they been turned? Might they have been bitten? And they didn't tell us. And we're going to wake up in the middle of the night to find them eating our liver. <laughs> Zombies are popular because they rest on our fears. Sometimes our paranoid fears. World War Z, and look at it, by the way, if you see it on your opening of your order of service, starts right here in Philadelphia. See that little thing, Art Street? By the way, that's not Philadelphia, that's Glasgow, Scotland, because it's cheaper to film in Glasgow than it is in Philadelphia. But it was intended to start right here in Philly, a world overrun and overcome by the zombie apocalypse. It features uh, Brad Pitt, who is a former United Nations inspector, investigator, who is pressed back into service when the zombie apocalypse hits to find the cause and then perhaps to find the cure. Now, of course, the world of World War Z, of WWZ, is much more dangerous and imperiled moment to moment than our own world. But the reason perhaps some of us are drawn to it is that it does hit those same basic drives, those same basic concerns, fear, safety, trust. What's out there in the dark? Can we trust it? Can we trust them? Is them coming to get us? And in this last week, I have to say that WWZ the Z is not for me any longer Z for zombie. And this may be true of some of you as well. The Z is for Zimmerman. We all know very much, I think, at this point about the sad, awful story of George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. I've read enough people who I respect, whose opinions are sane and grounded and unbiased, that the law reached an uncomfortable, but perhaps, given what the law was, the only conclusion it could have come to. And yet, I have lost sleep over this week, this past week, with how much this case had troubled me and my conscience. We know some of the basics of the story, 
those which are a matter of public record, that George Zimmerman, self-appointed neighborhood watch, identified a threat in the young Trayvon Martin, walking home after going to the convenience store, said these words when calling 911, they always get away, these a-holes, these effing punks. He was told clearly by the police not to pursue. It's right there in the detective who interviewed him in March 2012. If George Zimmerman had not pursued, this would have been avoided. An armed man kills a teenager. I have been stunned. I have been angered. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this. I find myself playing this game a lot. If George Zimmerman had only questioned his assumptions, if he wasn't self-declared neighborhood watch on his own, only taking his own counsel, and if he had listened to police and not pursued that teenager, Trayvon Martin, if, 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 this might have been different. This is why zombie movies are popular. Because what's out there in the dark? Is it coming to get us? And, as zombie movies have said as a form of social critique, since there have been zombie movies, sometimes we meet the zombies, and the zombies are not the zombies. The zombies are us. Driven so much by our fear. A word that has come up for me in this past week is a Tibetan word that the wonderful, wise Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, talks about. The word is Shenpa. Shenpa. And it means roughly this. See our little friend here asking, do I take the bait? That's what Shenpa means. Shenpa means getting hooked. The moment when because of fear, driven by sometimes things we are, ourselves do not understand, we bite down, we clamp down, and we hook ourselves and sometimes other people. We take the bait, we do not discern, we just go headlong into life without any thought, without any preparation. But I want to go back to the previous one, because this is the key moment. Very often, once we're on the hook, we're on the hook in our lives when we're driven by fear. This is the key moment. This is the moment in which we can choose not to get hooked. We can choose not to engage the Shenpa. We can choose not to engage our fear. This is the moment that Viktor Frankl, not writing as an academic, but Viktor Frankl, who some of you might know, saw the worst or among the worst of human bigotry and misery and racism and profiling taken to its logical conclusion, he survived the Holocaust. And from the Holocaust learned not to hate, but instead to understand what real human freedom really was. And what he was writing about was Shenpa when he said this, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. There's a space right there. There is a space. And in that space, Viktor Frankl went on to say, lies our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and lies our freedom. 
I don't think George Zimmerman honored that space. By the way, in difficult circumstances, when we are afraid, it is even more important to honor that space and not get hooked. It's one of the things in the movies I really liked about it, in the movie for today. One of the places that has proven itself for a while, not ultimately, but for a while, safe from the zombie hordes, is Jerusalem, that ancient city for refugees. And as Brad Pitt is trying to find out where did the zombie apocalypse start and why has Jerusalem put up walls and barriers to keep themselves safe for a time, it doesn't last, he talks to a former Mossad agent, the Israeli intelligence, and he said they've had a practice for a long time of gathering 10 of their most trusted intelligence leaders together. And if nine of them agree this is a threat, because this is what they hear, they hear a uh, communique from India that mentions the word zombie, <laughs> and nine of them think maybe there's something there, and the one person who says, zombies, are you insane, is the person tasked with responsibility of following through on the lead. And because of that, the city of Jerusalem becomes a place that is safe. Now, this number... Some of you might know, grew up in the Jewish tradition, some of you might know this as well. Ten is not an arbitrary number. Ten is the number, traditionally of men, although now men and women, that's called a minyan, that gathers for prayer. Prayer at the deepest level of our being is all about paying attention to what is going on around us, really paying attention not being driven by unconscious fears of what's out there, but taking time to honor that space. If we can take time to honor that space, yes, in a prayerful way, which does mean paying attention deeply, we will understand the difference between these two words, separated by only one letter. The difference between being driven by the herd, if we are in it, or being driven by the fear of the H-E-R-D out there. And instead of having an H-E-R-D mentality, driven by fear, taking the bait, we can learn to have an H-E-A-R-D, a herd mentality, a listening mentality. When I reflect back on George Zimmerman's crucial first words when he called into the police, this is what I hear. They... A-holes, punks, plural, plural, plural. Trayvon Martin was a plural to George Zimmerman, not a person. He was thinking H-E-R-D. But with the H-E-A-R-D mentality in all of our lives, we can open up space to listen Open up and honor that space in which not just our freedom, but another person's and other people's freedom matter. There is still so much we do not and cannot know about that night. But something that has troubled me deeply over this last week. Perhaps, yes, George Zimmerman was attacked after pursuing Trayvon Martin. And Trayvon Martin correctly or incorrectly, acted belligerently. 
But one of the things that's starting to happen that I think must be resisted is that, well, everyone loses in this. No. There are the pursuers and there are the pursued. There is the killer and there is the killed. And morally, they are not the same thing. That night, how it all went down, the controversy will continue. There's a lot we won't know. It's kind of true in the movie as well. Brad Pitt sets out looking for patient zero. They think they're going to find the cure to the zombie apocalypse by finding the cause. How it happened, if we can answer that, then maybe we can find a way out. But his search for patient zero proves absolutely fruitless. It's true so often in our lives, we search for a first cause, and then that first cause just leads us to the search for another first cause, and another first cause, and another first cause, and pretty soon we're in an infinite regress of non-action in the midst of our lives because we don't know where to start because no place feels firm enough. This is where the figure of Brad Pitt in the movie, I think, is very instructive. He is not a scientist or a soldier. They're the two most important people in this world. He's not a scientist or a soldier, and yet he is, with, he is among scientists and soldiers all throughout the movie. He has no obvious specialty other than this. He is fearlessly inquisitive. He is willing to open space again and again and again and to not be driven solely by fear because when we are driven solely by fear, we refuse to see reality. I mean, we know it in ourselves physiologically. We know it when we feel fear. What's very often the first thing that we do? We cover up, we fight back, we flee away. There is often in the body of fear a certain kind of rigidity and we can forget, not just with our minds, but with our bodies, that there's always room to stop and to notice and to pay attention. This is what I hope for all of us as we go forward, not just all of us here at Wellsprings, but all of us throughout society. Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman will not go away. We'll be talking about this for a very long time. How can we do so in a way that is fruitful and not fruitless? I got an indication of this this past week from a woman named Michelle Martin. Some of you might know her. She's on NPR. And she had a small piece this past week that asked this question. Is it time to see each other's tears? Right now, it's really easy to be reactive against someone else's anger, especially if they see this case differently than you might see it. And Michelle Martin says we don't have to be naive, doesn't mean we're all going to come together to sing Kumbaya, it doesn't mean we have to let go of the controversy or the fact that the world, yes, sometimes is dangerous, but we have a choice. And she faced one of these choices. She was in an eatery in Washington, D.C., and she herself is African-American. And standing next to her online was another African-American woman who had just been kind of dissed and dismissed by the person behind the counter. And this younger African-American woman, then Michelle Martin, started to get very, very angry and very upset. And you could see the thing starting to escalate. And Michelle Martin knew in that moment she had a choice. She could just walk away and keep it as it was, not do anything. 
where she could turn toward that young woman and ask a very simple question that still takes a lot of courage. Are you okay? That one simple question reduced that young woman's anger. And she started to cry. Beneath so much of our bluster, beneath so much of our fear, beneath so much of our getting hooked, is pain. How we pay attention to each other people's pain matters. It always matters, and I think it especially matters right now. One of the other things that Michelle Martin went on to say in this piece is she used a study that was done at Harvard in a lab, a scientific study. That study was called the Racial Empathy Gap. And this was done with hundreds of people. It wasn't just one or two people on a blog saying, this is how I feel. It studied the people who were the subjects and the people who came in to observe. And it set a number of people of a number of different races as the participants and the people who were observing. And it would do things like uh, uh, pick someone, with a, uh, prick someone with, a, with a pin. And they would manifest pain on their face. Over and over and over again, what it demonstrated is that people responded, black and white, by the way, with less empathy or compassion to the subjects who were black. I'll go on to quote directly from the article. The research suggested that study participants assumed blacks are somehow impervious to pain because they felt so much of it. In the researchers' words, because they are believed to be less sensitive to pain, black people are forced to endure more pain. I want the world to recognize my pain when I'm suffering. <laughs> we all do. It's a universal human impulse. And yet, I believe in what this study says. I don't like it. But I believe it's really revealing something true, which is the very definition of privilege. That as a person with white skin, I get listened to more. My pain gets heard more. It is an unearned, unmerited, and unjust privilege. And by the way, spiritually, it is an absolute violation of this tradition in which we sit here today, this universalism that believes there is a love, however we define or name that love, that there is a love that ultimately we come from and ultimately draws all of us in. Checking our assumptions, especially those of us, and I include myself in this very deeply, especially those of us who hold power historically and currently in the society, it really matters when our hearts close down. And in learning to keep the heart open, we recognize, are we dismissing another person's pain because they're not like us? They don't look like us. They don't sound like us. They're foreign to us. And let's remember the basics of all progressive teachings. Who is our neighbor? Not just the neighbor who lives next to us. The neighbor is all of us. That's universalism in a nutshell. 
if we can move towards this, if we can move beyond standing our ground rigidly. That's not just bad law, that's a bad way to live. We might recognize that one of the other things in this movie that I think is great wisdom, and it comes during a scene in which they're speaking, um, the two main characters are speaking uh, French. And it's the only piece of the dialogue that is translated on the screen for us. And it says this, life is movement. <laughs> life is movement. That's what we all need right now, I think. Mark Nepo, I read this in a colleague's blog this past week when he was talking about resiliency. Mark Nepo is a wonderful spiritual teacher, says this. Says this about movement. He learned this from glass blowing. The glass blower knows that while in the heat of the beginning, any shape is possible. Once hardened, the only way to change is to break. Life at its deepest level is not stand your ground. Life at its deepest level is movement. I hope we might see the wisdom in this spiritual community, in one of our most popular teams, the retreat team, that maybe we might see the wisdom not of standing our ground, but of recognizing that sometimes Retreating, de-escalating, being a peacemaker. As Rabbi Jesus said in his most famous sermon, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Children of life itself. That's what it is to be a peacemaker. Someone who recognizes that life is movement and flow. See, because the thing is, once we are hooked... <laughs> by someone else's bait, when we are hooked by our own bait, we are caught. And so I'd ask all of us today, how can we not take the bait? It matters. It matters. Life and death, it matters. How can we not take the bait and instead be who we can be? A moving, breathing, growing, changing, loving source of freedom and grace and belonging for ourselves and for everyone that we meet. This is not easy work, but it is, to borrow the phrase from the tradition in which I was raised, to kun ha'olam, it is the work of the healing of the world. May we set our hands to it. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of flow, of the movement that is grace, of the larger work of love and healing and belonging that calls out to us each and every day, not just written in the headlines, but written in the heart, 
is this invitation. How can we number ourselves amongst the peacemakers and overcome the alienation that makes us forget that we are sons and daughters, that we are children and adults of this life itself and we already belong if only we would behave in that fashion. To know the connections that bind us all. To practice those connections that bind us all. And to live fostering the connections that bring us each to the other and ourselves home. This is truly holy work. Amen.